Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are talking about Japanese theologian Katsuo Kitamori. Now, why this guy you may never have heard of before? Well, discerning listeners may have noticed that I live in Tokyo. My family and I moved there last August. I am a pastor working with the Japan Evangelical Lutheran Church at the congregation called Tokyo Lutheran Church. And my husband, Andrew, is working on Japanese in order to be a professor at the Lutheran Seminary in Tokyo. And so needless to say, we have become very interested in all things Japanese, and in particular, all things Japanese and Lutheran, which on the Venn diagram of the world is a fairly small overlap. (laughs) Nevertheless, um, it was actually long before this possibility of moving to Tokyo even came up that I became acquainted with the Japanese theologian Katsuo Kitamori, who I mentioned, um, lived during the 20th century, and wrote tons of books, in fact, but he is most famous for his book called Theology of the Pain of God. It was, uh, the fifth edition was translated into English and published in 1958. Um, Got some attention then, but it really got famous when Jürgen Moltmann's The Crucified God came out. He had found Kitamori and made great use of him, and that spurred a great new interest in Kitamori. Um, But a huge range of reactions, everything from saying like, wow, this guy is the one who's fully enculturated the gospel into Japanese culture. It's others saying, oh, he's not Japanese at all. And other people saying, like, this is the, you know, most brilliant development of true Orthodox Christian doctrine other, uh, ever to other people saying that he was just a complete heretic. His reception is also a bit complicated because although his theological formation and commitments were definitely doctrinally Lutheran, he did not stay in the Lutheran church after World War II, but in the Kyodan church. This was a forced merger of, I think, 33 Protestant denominations by the imperial Japanese state. Um, They forced them all into one. Uh, Kitamori actually wrote the Confession of Faith that is uh, still the, the, the doctrinal definition for the Kyodan church. He stayed in it after the war. Um, But again, he theologically remained quite Lutheran without being in the Lutheran church specifically. Um, A further complication is that after the war, Japanese Christian theologians were very Bardian, especially in the sense of critique of culture and natural religion. And as we'll see, Kitamori deliberately takes up aspects of Japanese pre-Christian culture, which is most of Japanese culture, and uses them as ways of illuminating the gospel. And this kind of put him at the time beyond the pale of acceptability. Many Christians in Japan felt that there was nothing redeeming about Japanese culture. So the fact that he was was using them made him a controversial figure. So anyway, I found him years ago when I was just getting curious about Lutheran theology outside of the North Atlantic Center and found him, fell in love with the book, thought it was just incredibly impressive, profound, thought-provoking, um, I would even go so far as to say a real development in Lutheran doctrine. Um, Dad, why don't you mention also how you got to know Kitamori, and uh, why don't you also correlate that with your own growing interest in questions of the Japanese church during the war? Yeah, I first heard of Kitamori while I was a graduate student at Union Theological Seminary from 1978 to to 1983. And uh, Kasuke Koyama was a professor there, a Japanese theologian uh, whom I was acquainted with. 
but I have to say it was, as you mentioned, Moltmann's Crucified God that uh, directly acquainted me with the main ideas of Kitamori. I remember reading Moltmann's trilogy while I was a graduate student, Theology of Hope, Crucified God, Church, and the Power of the Spirit. That's the Crucified God's the, the middle uh, member of that trilogy. To me, uh, uh, I didn't pursue studying Kitamori on my own because Dorte Zola, who was also a visiting professor at Union at the time, was also invoking him. And between Zola and Moltmann, I had become quite apprehensive of what sometimes we called a canonic collapse uh, of the doctrine of God, that, that the emphasis on the suffering or pain of God was so categorical that it's not that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, but that the word morphed into flesh and remained flesh, nothing but flesh forever and ever. So there was a kind of a, uh, I had that kind of negative reaction to, as, as much as I like Moltmann's theology of hope, I was apprehensive about some of the implications of a, of a categorical death of God in uh, Moltmann's uh, Crucified God book. Also, Moltmann was unabashedly patropassionist uh, and talked uh, about the, uh, as it were, I'm, this is a little bit of a caricature, but not far off, almost a maudlin portrait of God the Father being helplessly <laughs> a helpless bystander to the crucifixion of his son. And again, I found that to be uh, borderline maudlin rhetoric and didn't like it very much. But let's give just a quick definition of patripassionism. It's one of those arcane theological terms that, you know, people like us love, but are not necessarily common coin. Right. To me, you know, the genesis of the Trinitarian distinction between the father and the son is that the Father sends and the Son goes. The Father commands and the Son obeys. The Father uh, wills the suffering. The Son surrenders to the suffering. So when you maintain those personal distinctions, what's appropriate to the divinity of the Son of God is a capacity for suffering in a way that's not appropriate to the divinity of the Father. So if you say that the father suffers, there's a danger of a confusion of a, of such an identification uh, of the father and the son that you obliterate the personal differences between them. So the early church denied that the father suffered in order to say that it was the son and the son alone who became incarnate for our salvation, suffered and died, etc. The problem is that people often infer that non-suffering to mean like the father is above it all or uninvolved or unemotional or unaffected, which is not the specific meaning of this doctrine. No, we're not talking in existential terms here. We're talking in ontological terms. So that that's how I learned about Kitamori years ago and why I didn't pursue the study of him. And I'll just mention one more thing quickly. As readers probably know, I've spent a great part of my life studying the uh, fate of theology uh, during the rise of Nazism. Published a book called Before Auschwitz about that. 
it was in this context uh, uh, that I've been teaching a course named after uh, Robert Erickson's uh, pioneering study, Theologians Under Hitler, um, that I uh, realized that there was a, a cross-cultural comparison case. Uh, so I, even before you all went to Tokyo, I got curious about this. How did the church, the, the nascent second, third generation Christian church in Japan uh, experience the rise of what one scholar, Walter Skaya, calls uh, uh, Shinto ultranationalism, or more simply uh, Shinto fascism uh, during the 30s and through the war? And what kind of parallels could be understood between that and the so-called pro-Nazi German Christians in the Hitler state. And so we'll talk about this later on, I suppose, what was Kitamori's profile during the reign of Shinto fascism. Okay, so then let me just um, then launch us in here with a, a very quick um, comment on his life. Um, Katsu Kitamori did not grow up in a Christian family, but in his youth, he read a book about Martin Luther, which um, impressed him greatly. He ultimately came to faith, got baptized, went to seminary, took a philosophy degree at the very prestigious Kyoto Imperial University, and he went on to teach at Tokyo Union Theological Seminary, which is actually right next door to the Lutheran Seminary in Tokyo, where I live. Um, and he wrote more than 40 books, um, though Theology of the Pain of God is the only one that's ever been translated into, into English. That's been one of my uh, incentives for learning Japanese, is I'm desperately curious to read more of his um, his work, though I've been warned even by native Japanese speakers that his uh, style is elo elo eloquent, erudite, and difficult. <laughs> so it might take a couple decades before my Japanese is good enough to read more of his work. He also um, served as a parish pastor during all that time. Um, so anyway, so Theology of the Pain of God is a book that he was already writing during the 30s. Um, it wasn't published until, um, I think, during or after the war. The insights that gave rise to it are not simply a product of the suffering of the war itself, but predate the, the worst expressions of that. Uh, and I just want to make one note for readers who may have a copy or get a copy. I hope you'll get a copy if you don't have one after hearing this. There is a kanji or a Chinese character on the, on the cover of the book because ja the Japanese language uses Chinese characters. That's what kanji actually means. And in case you're curious, it is the kanji for holy. That's what's on the cover of the book. Anyway, so what happened is that Kitamori sort of discusses in the book, he doesn't necessarily talk about a he sort of suggests that there's almost like there was this flash of insight that came to him as he was trying to understand the nature of God through the gospel. And interestingly, the the verses that brought him there were not actually New Testament verses where you'd think you'd go in the obvious way for talking about the pain of God, like Jesus Christ on the cross or something, um, but in the Old Testament. And there are two verses in particular that struck him to the core and opened up the whole insight that he then um, exposits in this book. I'm going to read them. They are. I'm taking both of these from the King James Version because, as I'll show, they use the word bowels, which is um, in more contemporary English translations, it's translated usually as heart because in contemporary 
uh, English, heart refers to like the center of emotion. But in the Hebrew, bowels, sometimes kidneys are the more, that lower part of your torso is the center of emotion. And that in particular, that choice of word was very striking to Kitamori. So the first one is from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 20. And it reads, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spake against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, saith the Lord. The second verse is Isaiah chapter 63, verse 15. Look down from heaven, and behold from the habitation of thy holiness and of thy glory. Where is thy zeal and thy strength, the sounding of thy bowels and of thy mercies toward me? Are they restrained? This one you can tell is an address to God rather than a, the first one, which is a speech from God. But it's, again, specifically invoking the Lord's bowels and in parallel with the mercies um, directed towards the person in, in anguish or sin or suffering. So the reason why Kitamori was so struck by this choice is that elsewhere, everywhere else in the Old Testament, this term bowels is used to describe human beings, creatures, and their emotions especially, in particular anguished or suffering or troubled emotions. And he was so startled by the use of these words to describe the Lord's own condition. Um, it definitely seemed to interfere with that, um, you know, above it all, simplicity, uninvolved perfection, which is often posited of God. And he took those as kind of the starting point to think through the full implications of the gospel of Christ incarnate suffering on the cross. But for what purpose? And where Kitamori goes with this is to talk about the fact that in the gospel, like for him, the core of the gospel is not simply um, rescue from the devil or healing what is broken, but most specifically, and this is, of course, a, a major theme of the Apostle Paul, is that God loves his enemies. God loves people who are opposed to God, not people who are crying out for help, but for people who don't want God, don't want God's help, don't want God's intervention at all. And so for Kitamori, this is the real, the, the key thing that's going on here is this immense love God has for what he calls the unembraceable, those who God embraces those who cannot be embraced, or even more powerfully, uh, the translator notes, it might be better to say, those who should not be embraced, those who are so far beyond what is lovable and acceptable and good that it can only be a violation of everything that God stands for, for God to love and embrace them anyway. And this is where we start to get towards the idea of the pain of God. So a couple of comments on what you've said there, Sarah. On the Bible texts, you know, I, I would wonder, uh, I haven't checked the Hebrew for a while, but Hosea 11 also has a remarkable packet passage in which uh, the prophet has just spoken in God's name, uh, indicting uh, Israel and Ephraim for their sins. And then God says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I abandon you? Now the English is, My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. And I will not come to destroy, for I am God the Holy One in your midst, I am not like a jealous husband. Something like that. I'm 
going from memory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I was just looking. You got it nearly exactly right. Way to go. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Uh, yeah, but the point is, though, that it's the same kind of inner turmoil or conflict of feelings, con- contradictory emotions that are battling within God here. That's what this rhetoric is depicting, right? That's what Kitamori is discovering. Uh, and just one other comment about his uh, ed- education at Kyoto Imperial University. At this time in history, Japan was finding imperial Germany and its tradition most relevant to its own modernization. Its uh, constitution is modeled after imperial Germany in the 1880s and 90s. And the German philosophy of the 19th century was assiduously studied in Japan. And so Kitamori's education in Tokyo immersed him in the texts of 19th century German Lutheran thought. And particularly relevant here, as we'll get to later on in the podcast, is his study of Hegel. And this raises the neurologic question of the relationship of Luther's theology to Hegel's philosophy. Yeah, I think if anyone picks up this book and reads it, you'll be struck by how much Kitamori intervenes in German philosophy and theology. He was clearly extremely well-educated in those things. That's actually one of the reasons some people consider him not very Japanese, as if, uh, you know, if you're Japanese, you're not allowed to know or be interested in things German. <laughs> it's kind of a strange argument. It is, but, and you know, let me just make a, an aside to that too. One of the more significant contemporary Lutherans just passed away recently was Vitor Vestella, who was a Brazilian theologian who taught at the Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago for many years. And uh, he has advocated for people with these kinds of binary black and white, indigenous versus cultural imperialism kinds of paradigms. He's championed the notion of hybridity. Uh, that the global civilization that we're emerging into is so cross-fertilized, so increasingly cross-fertilized, that you cannot talk about pure indigenous cultures that should be preserved from influence by other pure indigenous cultures. Uh, This is a kind of new ghettoization, and that, in fact, even uh, second and third world theologians like Kitamori, uh, are actually champions of this his notion of hybridity. Well, as a seriously hybrid person myself, I can only say a hearty amen to that. All right, so let's continue to explore what he's he's talking about here. So we mentioned, I think, two episodes ago when we were talking about Athanasius, what we called the divine dilemma. So this is, you know, if human beings sin and turn against God, then God's justice and righteousness demands, you know, punishment or rejection of the sin tangled up in the sinner. But at the same time, to lose the precious creation to sin is also a defeat for God. And so Athanasius spells out the incarnation and atonement, the death and resurrection of Christ as God's solution to his own dilemma of saving his beloved creatures who are nevertheless sinners and enemies to himself. And so what we can see is Kitamu Mori is picking up on this feeling of the divine dilemma, and he's focusing then here on this anguish, or in Luther's language, to talk about the God against God, um, which 
please note that's not father versus son, like father didn't want to save and son did want to save. But the whole question of God taking into his own being the suffering and the accountability that goes with righteously um, punishing sin, calling sin what it is and eliminating it. So this is where Kitsamori is really seeing what he calls the pain of God, which is God turning towards those, the unlovable, those who should not or cannot be embraced and taking them up and holding them. That is specifically for him where the pain of God emerges. And now he makes it, I think, a very interesting development of the idea of the love of God. I have to admit, sometimes I get really bored listening to uh, people talk about the love of God because it just seems so bland and inane. You know, God loves you. God loves you. I mean, to the point that I just don't care, it seems it's like. A pl- it has become a platitude, a substitute for thought. Right. So what I, I find striking about Kitsamori here is what he says is that um, the father has an immediate love for the son, which is to say that within the divine persons, um, the son is truly lovable, is is in himself good, is in himself lovable and loving. And that is the kind of immediate non-difficult love between father and son. But the son, the love that the father, or we can say the whole God, but let's just stick with the father for now. The love that the father can have for his creatures who, let us say, are truly his enemies, are truly sinners, who have truly rejected his righteousness, truly destroyed his good gifts of creation. The kind of love God can have for them cannot be this immediate love that the father has for the son precisely because sin is a real thing. It is a real obstacle. It genuinely renders sinners unlovable in a very profound sense. And so what Kitamori says is that God loves sinners in a immediate way as opposed to immediate way. He loves them through the son who is crucified on their behalf. And this is really trying to draw attention to the cost to God in loving sinners. Again, it is not an axiomatic platitude, but to truly love those who are truly your enemies. We have to, this doesn't work unless we take sin seriously as a real thing and not just, you know, a a fortunate set of peccadilloes that one could just brush off. This is talking about full bore rejection of God. And it is it is in the son, the crucified, that the father is able to love the broken humanity, the sinful humanity. Yeah, that's great, Sarah. And I think Kitamori here was learning, uh, as he acknowledges from Luther, who repeatedly throughout his career kept saying something like, we're talking about real, not fictitious sinners. Uh, to make this point that that a real sinner is someone who objectively opposes God, is in opposition to God, is in a state of enmity with God. And fictitious sinners would be the kinds of trivial naughty naughties that most people think of, if they think of sin at all, as little more than visible transgressions of some list of right and wrong uh, of rules or something like that. Yeah, so this kind of doctrine of God is finally not going to be intelligible or meaningful without a real doctrine of sin. <laughs> there is a definite correlation between the two of these here. And, uh, you know, I, I don't care where one starts, but if, if you have one, you're going to end up with the other one way or another. I think Luther's own instincts were to, to start with the cross and say, if the cross, then what must be the condition that the cross is addressing? 
and from there to the profundity of sin, rather than trying to do some kind of survey of human behavior to say, well, are they really that bad? You know, um, I, I think those kinds, you know, there's certainly plenty of, of uh, on the ground evidence of human sin. But I, I tend to think Luther's approach that start from the cross and go from there to sin is ultimately the more convincing it one. It reminds me years ago when we were working to introduce weekly communion in Lutheran churches, one pastor told me the story of a, a senior uh, member of the congregation saying to him on the way out after church, Pastor, you must think we're really sinners if we need to have communion every week. And the pastor said he replied without hesitating, yes. <laughs> <laughs> End of discussion. <laughs> right. And one other connection, though, to the pain of God that you're talking about now, I think this is directly uh, uh, related to Dietrich Bonhoeffer's notion of costly grace. Now, most American readers of Bonhoeffer think that costly grace means I got to do something to show I really appreciate the gift of God. I've got, I've got to, I've got to suffer. I've got to sacrifice. I've got to pay back God for the gift of His grace. That makes it costly to me. Well, yes, Bonhoeffer did define cheap grace as grace without repentance, but that's not the heart of Bonhoeffer's idea at all. The heart of Bonhoeffer's idea is that it cost God the death of his son in order genuinely to forgive real, not fictitious sinners. And you can read all about that in his doctoral dissertation, Communion of Saints. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And that leads in directly to um, where Kitamori brings in Japanese cultural traditions to shed some light on this. So let, let me talk about that now. So there's two particular um, traditions that Kitamori draws on. The first is the tradition of kabuki theater. A lot of Westerners will know that from the very dramatically painted faces, you know, with the extreme eyes and, um, you know, slightly clownish, but in a, a much more serious way way than Western clown traditions and uh, um, exciting shows and poses and props and sort of things like that. Our, our Western perception of kabuki is that it's a bit, you know, kind of like kind of like puppetry or like a little over the top kind of thing. But actually, kabuki has a long tradition of tragic stories, like right up there with classic Greek tragedies. Uh, but the specific focus, according to Kitamori, of kabuki tragedies is that the bitterest pain one can suffer is to cause the death of his beloved son. This is a theme that comes out again and again in these tragedies is that some situation arises in which a person doesn't, a man doesn't sacrifice himself, but somehow has to sacrifice his son. And this is worse. Like he would prefer to sacrifice himself if it was possible, but instead his beloved son is the one who has to go. You can see the clear um, identification going on there. And Kitamori introduces us to a Japanese word, surasa, which is a, something like bitterness. But it's the feeling, he says, that comes when one suffers and dies or makes his beloved son suffer and die for the sake of loving and making others live. So again, this very profound sense of one dies that others may live, one suffers that others may flourish. And this is a worthy thing to do, but there is no denying the genuine pain and anguish that comes of making that kind of sacrifice. 
The other um, aspect of Japanese culture that Kitamori invokes, um, again, in, in this idea of costliness to God in salvation, um, there's a tradition or a, a sect, you might call it, of, of Buddhism in Japan called Pure Land Buddhism. Um, it has actually quite a lot of fascinating parallels to um, the Reformation within Christianity. It, um, I believe it allows its uh, priests to marry. Um, it puts a lot of emphasis on the mercy of the Buddha rather than the necessity of human religious practice in order to achieve um, salvation slash nirvana and so forth. That, that, that might be an interesting topic for another time. Anyway, um, Pure Land Buddhism has this famous figure, the Crown Prince Shotoku, who was a regent in Japan at the turn of the 7th century AD. So, you know, long before Christianity came anywhere near Japan. And uh, as Kitamori reports, reports um, Shotoku's insight was that humankind's real sickness springs from foolish love, and then the Buddha's responding sickness arises from his great mercy. So the sickness of the great mercy of Buddha saves people by absorbing their sickness. And then here's the key point, sickness is saved by sickness. So it's this idea that the Buddha becomes ill in his mercy towards suffering human beings. He becomes ill in his concern for them and in so doing absorbs and takes upon himself their sickness and that is what releases them. And so Kitamori saw here an amazing parallel to Isaiah 53, by his stripes we are healed kind of thing. So he sees that there's this kind of uh, you know, proto-evangelion, this preparation for the gospel in traditional Japanese artistic as well as religious culture, even Buddhist culture. Um, but then he makes this critical distinction. He says, though these help us to see the pain at stake for God, and that's one of the key things he's trying to get across in this book. The problem with both of these, they're not the gospel yet, besides the fact that Christ is not involved, but they're not the gospel yet because still in these cases, the death of the beloved son or the suffering of the Buddha is really for a worthy object. You know, somebody who it's worth, who, whose life is worth preserving or someone whose cry for mercy is worth honoring. Um, it's not actually for someone who remains unworthy or turned away from from the mercy of God or of Buddha or whatever. And furthermore, that this even the sickness that is described by Crown Prince Shotoku, um, the sickness of the Buddha is not actually still internal to the Buddha's own being. It's it's an action he undertakes, but not central to who he is. And it's not in response. There's no expression of true wrath against true sin. So again, we see these suggestive parallels or preparations for the gospel, but Kitamori wants to keep pushing us even further towards God's anguish and pain being not just suffering or sacrifice, but specifically suffering and sacrifice for those who don't deserve it. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating too, how he found plausible connections with traditional Japanese culture that at least served as a bridge of intelligibility. Uh, and I think that's the concern here. The missionary concern is not uh, to build a positive point of contact in the sense of a foundation. Here's Japanese culture, which now can be a foundation on which we'll build the superstructure of Christian belief, but rather an appeal, as you said, as a preparation for the gospel, that there are insights uh, in aspects of Japanese culture and tradition 
which can serve the purposes of making the gospel proclamation intelligible to a new audience. Isn't is that, am I getting you right here? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think furthermore, I mean, again, to, to pick up your point from Vitor Vestella before is it doesn't only help make it intelligible for the Japanese, but I found as a Westerner finding Kitamori's book, and really I, I cannot stress strongly enough how utterly ignorant I was of Japanese anything <laughs> before I read this book or moved to Japan for that matter. I, I found these extremely provocative and helpful and really pushed me in my own understanding of the centrality, especially for Paul, of Christ's love of sinners while they are sinners, of God's enemies while they are enemies. It's not just those who have finally recognized their enemy and sinner status and are turning back to God and looking for help. And God says, oh, finally, they came to their senses and I can help them now. <laughs> but in fact, it's it's already preceding that realization. Th- these examples brought it to me, uh, someone with no, I've never seen Kabuki still, and I've never read anything in Pure Land Buddhism, but I found them extremely inspiring and insightful. Well, we have it right in the canon. When Paul met Christ on the road to Damascus, he was an enemy, not a friend. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. We, we should have been able to grasp this, you know, but in principle. But that raises the question at the end of the theology of the pain of God, maybe we're going to get to this later, but let me just note it here. Uh, uh, Kitamori makes a criticism of the traditional two natures doctrine from uh, Christology. Go ahead, take that up now. Okay. Now, l- let me just kind of put my own interpretation of what Kitamori is saying, and maybe you can correct me. But I think what he's saying is something like this. In principle, a two natures distinction is necessary and justifiable because God is the creator of all that is not God, and that's God's uniqueness. And if you want to use the concept nature to designate that, that God is qualitatively other as creator of all that is not God, and then creatures are qualitatively other than the creator in being, in principle, created, uh, receiving their being as a gift with a beginning and an end, whereas the creator must be conceived to be the infinite source of giving without beginning and without end. So this is a very biblical distinction between the creator who creates, as we say traditionally, out of nothing, not conditioned by any other rival or any other exterior reality, and all creatures who receive their existence uh, purely as a gift, uh, and a finite gift with a beginning and an end. So, two natures doctrine, sure, I mean, it articulates something that's very important for the Bible. The difficulty Kitamori finds is that the notion of a nature has a specific meaning in the context of Greco-Roman philosophy. And it doesn't make any difference here whether you're a Platonist or whether you're a Aristotelian or one of the other Hellenistic philosophies, Stoic, uh, um, <laughs> I'm stumbling here. Epicurean. Epicurean, yes. Or a Cynic academician. All of them have the idea, going back to the early dialogues of even the pre-Socratics, but clearly with Plato, that the idea of something is eternal uh, because its a definition never changes. The definition of a chair as an instrument for which 
a uh, hominid can seat itself is forever true, and it never changes. But empirically, chairs can be made out of stone, out of wood, out of metal, out of fiberglass. They can have three legs or four legs right. or ten and legs. You can find yeah. a stump in the forest and sit down on it and call it your chair. And so the, I, the, the specific notion here is that the idea of something is more real than any instance of it. And this idea of the changeless, immutable eternity of ideas then gets superimposed through the two natures doctrine on our thinking about how God became human in Christ. And then we have this terrible problem. How does an immutable, unchanging idea become mutable, <laughs> let alone suffering and dying on a cross or spending nine months in Mary's womb? And it seems to be a contradiction in terms which creates incredible tensions in Christian thinking about the Incarnation. And this is what Kitamori is going after. He, he is saying this notion of, of a platonic notion of nature has infected uh, the doctrine of the two natures of Christ uh, in a way that undermines insight into the pain of God. And I think that's he's quite right about that. We have to conceive of the natures as dynamic lives rather than as static blocks of ideas. Right. So actually, it's the definition or the philosophy that generates all sorts of problems that then you require all sorts of gymnastics to solve, when in fact, if you just went back and retooled the philosophy or definition, it wouldn't generate the problems that then needed to be solved. It's like Jensen's un idea of the unbaptized God, that this, the conceptuality still retains uh, its philosophical and metaphysical baggage, that then, instead of serving to clarify uh, the Christian thought of the Incarnation, obscures what Kitamori has discovered, the theology of the pain of God. Yeah, and I think this is, clearly shows why you and I have both responded so strongly to Kitamori and positively is because he really, the way he talks about God and God's pain really requires, as you said, a dynamic personhood that interacts with human history rather than being the the nature that, you know, you have to come up with these weird things. How does this nature become that nature and still be its original nature? Those problems become, you know... Yeah, they just generate their own problems. It's better to move into this other direction. Well, and that's exactly why. So this is another point that Kitamori makes we can go to from here, is that it's specifically the incarnation, whatever that means between natures. Let's let's not go there. But for him, the point of the witness of the church to Jesus, who is truly divine and truly human, is that it allows all of the sin and sorrow of human history to be taken up into God's own life. And he has this wonderful quote, he says, God has died. If this does not startle us, what will? The church must keep this astonishment alive. The church ceases to exist when she loses this astonishment. Sarah, that's where, for a lot of our friends, even as I witnessed my own apprehension at Moltmann years ago, uh, this is where our friends often get nervous and say, Hegel, 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 Rediviva, Hegel's coming back. 
And I, I think we have to work on showing how this may borrow some of Hegel's rhetoric, or it may resemble some of Hegel's rhetoric, who famous, famously lifted up what he called the old Lutheran hymn, God has died, the death of God, right? And, <clears throat> and, and said this is the deepest insight of representational religion which then he, Hegel, the philosopher, was going to comprehend philosophically. Well, why don't, why don't you deal with the Hegel question? I, I am not the Hegel person. You love you at least know Hegel so well that you named our beagle Hegel those many <laughs> years ago, which endlessly confused people who called him Bagel instead. <laughs> yeah, I, call, I called the beagle uh, Hegel because I taught him to do flips, called dialectical reasoning. Yeah. <laughs> this is our dialectical dog. <laughs> dialectical dog. Hegel's basic idea is that humanity represented God as an otherworldly being with its own immutable, fixed, and apathetic nature. But as such, this representation of God had no life. It was just a dead idea. And so then religion represented the death of the otherworldly idea of God in the depiction of the suffering divine man, Christ. And that was a second step in the historical uh, evolution of religion. So you go from the representation of the otherworldly abstract God to the thisworldly suffering divine man on the cross where God has died, meaning the idea of an otherworldly God had died. And now you are faced with the death of God on the cross. Then Hegel went on and said the third idea of the, of the third representation of religion is the spirit. And the spirit then is the consciousness that humanity arises from the death of God on the cross to take up its own divine vocation and do the work that had been falsely attributed to the abstract, otherworldly, but now in reality, non-existent deity. So Hegel's philosophy is, is really kind of the first uh, ambiguous statement of European atheism. Yes, I think that's just clearly true, and right-wing Hegelians who don't recognize that ought to. And in any case, Thomists, Catholic and Protestant Thomists, sure do recognize it. <laughs> and, and that's why they're so nervous about talk of the suffering or pain, of, or let alone the death of God, because it, it seems to them to indicate what I called earlier a, a canonic collapse. God just collapses uh, into the world or humanity or something, something like that. Well, it seems to me that this can only be a massive projection onto Kitamori. That is, doesn't seem to me in any way to be what he's getting at when he makes this assertion. So go with that. Tell us what he means. Well, I think he's simply retrieving classical Lutheran Christology here. Um, so to, to uh, maybe bring it back to another um, heretical <laughs> accusation, um, we mentioned patripassionism earlier, this idea that there's no distinction between father and son and, and that the father dies. Um, so for what Kitamori really wants to emphasize here is that it is God in the person of the son 
who suffers. That is, that is the God who has died. It is not the Father who has died, and it is not the Spirit who has died. It is specifically the person of the Son who has died. And this comes right out of Luther. He talks extensively about this Christology in which the Son becomes human in order to gain the capacity to die, which is indeed not natural, quote-unquote, to the, the being of God. So therefore, there is no prospect of a canonic collapse in classical Christian doctrine because the ability to die is not native or innate to God's own being. But it is specifically in order to be able to die that the Son becomes human flesh, and with furthermore the intention to die. And it's in that way that human death, creaturely death, is taken up and experienced in God's own life, but it is experienced in the person of the Son only. And then for Luther, what is furthermore quite important or essential is that there is a unity of the person of the Son, that what is human and what is divine about Christ are not kept in separate parallel compartments like you would get maybe out of the Tome of Leo from back at the Fourth Council, uh, but or is it the Third? Whatever. Whatever. But that there is a unity of person. So what the human Christ, quote unquote, the human Christ experiences is fully experienced by the divine Christ as well. And this is the kind of, uh, let's say, post-Neoplatonic metaphysics that Luther is trying to to pioneer, picking up on a, a number of themes in, in the early church, like the Cappadocians and Athanasius and so forth, in order to express what it means for God to die. But it is in no way this full-blown either matter of developing human religious epistemology or the actual just God outright, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or mysterious divine substance lurking behind those masks that is dead, dead. It is specific to the person of Christ. Right, and that, there's two interesting implications of what you're saying there. Uh, one is that the, the Christological point, the accent must fall upon the unity of the one person and uh, who works with the uh, qualities or properties of either nature as befits the mission uh, on which he is sent. Um, so it's not like, okay, now the humanity is suffering and dying, and now the nature, the divine nature is forgiving sins or raising the dead. And it, when you do that, you turn natures into agents as if they were persons who actually can make decisions and do things. And the the, the creed says, and we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that word one, which is, which is laying the emphasis that there's a single subject or agent here, which is the eternal Son of God become incarnate, this eternal Son of God taking to himself um, a human nature and making it his very own and living his own divine life in, with, and under this human nature. Right, so the stress is on the unity of person. I think that's extremely important uh, to emphasize, so that it's a matter of the son's personal freedom to use properties of either divine or human nature as needed, as as befits the mission, uh, and so forth. So the natures are subject to the personal will and obedience of the incarnate son. Or as we've said before, natures simply do not exist on their own. They only express exist as expressions of hypostases or persons. Right, or things, yeah. Right, exactly. Right. Okay. I, I forgot the other thing I was going to say in response, so let's just go on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
All right. So um, let's then take it as read at this point that we do not need to worry about patripassionism or canonic collapse in Kitamori, that he is following definitely this classical, both early church and Lutheran line about the death of God is in the unified person of the son. Now I remembered what uh, the other thing I wanted to say that reminded me. If you have this strong emphasis on the one person of the incarnate Son of God, then you are absolutely required to become a Trinitarian because the relevant distinction is not between divine and human natures in this particular matter, but the distinction between the Son and his Father and from their spirit. Those are the distinctions that really move the gospel story forward and into uh, our contemporary world. Thanks. Any reminder we can hear that the Trinity is not this weird philosophical thing set on top of the biblical story, but is in fact the way we understand and is integral to the gospel story. I think that is very helpful. Okay, so then let's let's push this point further of the uh, two natures, one person of Christ and the Trinity, the intention of all of this is towards God's move to save his own enemies. And again, this is what Kitamori keeps wanting to point us back to again. So there are a couple of, a few more points I want to take up that um, Kitamori expresses. His book is so packed, like in a way, any summary doesn't do justice because you have to, <laughs> to read the whole thing. But here are a few more things that I would like to lift up. So one of the things, uh, this again is quite fascinating to me, he talks about the concept of universal salvation as being banal. I'd love to know what the original Japanese word for that is. <laughs> but, and we, you know, we talked about this in our episode on triple predestination. It, you know, what, what can universal salvation mean vis-a-vis the costly death and resurrection of Christ and God's intention to save all, and yet the... Um, non-assurance of universal salvation in the New Testament. And the way Kitamori puts it is that for him, what really happens through Christ's death and resurrection is that God embraces the unembraceable, the unlovable at great personal cost. And that's kind of like where it's it stops for him <laughs> that this is to say that the gospel is God's love for his own enemies means that, in fact, what is happening is that God is currently and through Christ embracing all sinners, all unrighteous, all of his own enemies. But then what could that existentially mean? And I'm going to add my own um, thought experiment here. Uh, we often hear hell talked about as being the absence of God or living apart from God. But it seems to me that in that respect, hell is giving God's enemies exactly what they want to be free of God's presence. We can say objectively it's not good for them. But I actually think the true hell is to be in God's embrace and not want to be embraced by God. I think that is definitely hell for the person who doesn't want God. It must, in a certain real sense, be hell for God as well. And I think this points to what Kitamori is trying to get at with the pain of God, is that to talk about universal salvation or selective damnation, in a way both of those are missing the point. The point is that in the gospel, God embraces all people. And so there's no like in God's presence or out of God's presence. Everyone is in God's presence. The issue then becomes 
there are those for whom the embrace of God is intolerable. That itself is hell. And the fact that those people do not want to be embraced by God is hell for God. That is God's own pain. And then that, again, this is my building off of Kitamori here, but then salvation would be those who are in God's embrace and have come to accept it, to love it, to respond to it in faith. But again, it's not an, an inner out of God's presence. The point is that God is continually and always embracing his own enemies at his own great personal cost. Wow, that's another, that's a really cool reflection you've got there, and I like it, and I have to think about it some more. But it immediately makes me think of what Luther wrote against Zwingli uh, in the 1528 Confession Concerning Christ's Supper. Quote, it is one thing for God to be present. It is another thing for God to be present for you, end quote. So the distinction is there, I think, some, something just like what you're saying. God, the creator, is immediately present to all creatures unconditionally. But where do you find the merciful God for the real sinner? That is to find God present for you in Luther's way of putting these things. Yes, yeah, so, you know, people often wonder, like, why, for instance, you know, is communion a separate or special meal compared to any meal if we believe God is present anywhere? And, you know, that, that I think points to the exact issue here, which is, but this is the meal in which God is present for you and for the forgiveness of, this, of sins and in order to unite you with this community in a way that does not happen at any other meal or in any other place. It's why it's a holy meal and a holy communion. Yep. Right. It's again, it's not about whether God is there or not. And that's what I, I, I like about this implication of, of Kitamori on salvation is it's not God is in this nice place called heaven and God is not in this bad place ca called hell. God is everywhere. But what is the nature of your experience of being in God's presence? Is it desired or not? Is it tolerable or not? Yep. Very good. I like that. Okay. And then, so from there, then Kitamori gets into what, it, what does it mean then to be Christian? <laughs> what does it mean to live a Christian life or to live in faith or to relate to other people if this is in fact what the gospel is and this is what God is, this who in a costly way embraces pain in order to embrace the sinner. And so he has several, I think, very, again, very profound um, thoughts about this. So he says, for one thing, that the goal of Christian spirituality is to move beyond both, and now track closely with me here, to move both beyond the willing loving of the lovable. And that's what all of us do instinctively. We willingly, joyfully love the lovable. And hopefully many of the relationships in our lives are simply that, willingly loving the lovable. But then he says we also have to move beyond the unwilling loving of the unlovable. And that's probably where most of us are at our uh, bleeding edge of spiritual growth is learning how to love the unlovable, but we do it unwillingly. It is not a spontaneous or easy or joyful sort of thing, but something that generally requires some amount of discipline and suffering to get to. Where God would have us move ultimately is to willingly love the unlovable, because that for Kitamori is the most divine quality of God's love, is that God willingly loves those are, who are unlovable. But in order to be there, it can only mean that we are participating in this pain of God, because for God, again, this is the pain of God, is to willingly love those who are unlovable, to embrace the unembraceable. Super. You know, that makes me think, Sarah, without having studied Kitamori until the last year or so, um, 
and I what you you're reporting here is really resonates with me deeply. But I it it it, it parallels my own concept of patiency, which I developed in the systematic theology beloved community. Uh, patience is the eschatological virtue, of course, uh, but more precisely, it's how faith is operative in love, patiently bearing one another's burdens and that kind of thing. Moreover, we need a concept in theological anthropology to balance the overemphasis on agency. Agent, that means I'm the doer, the one who causes something to happen in the world. But patiency is also fundamental to human experience and theologically significant in that I allow something, I permit something to happen to me. And what is faith but a kind of patiency, letting God be God, letting God love me as his uh, unlovable enemy uh, in and through Christ? And the the spiritual suffering that I experience in uh, in that act of patient faith, letting God be God and recreate me according to his own patient love. And then in turn, what is my love uh, for others? Uh, it's certainly willing, but it's willing to bear with, to endure, to anyone who's been a pastor and has dealt with recalcitrant, troublesome, difficult people making life miserable knows exactly what I'm talking about. I don't know. I think anyone who's been a person <laughs> has had that experience. Yeah. So I like that because you're, you're emphasizing both the, let's say, our own agency in learning to willingly love the unlovable. But I like that you added in also the notion that we also have to learn to let God love us in our unlovability. That might be a, a parallel way of talking about what repentance is. It's not saying, God, here are all the reasons you should love me. You know, you know, you made me and you gave me these talents and I've done all these good things. But precisely to say to God, here are all the ways that I am unlovable and I get that and you still love me and I'm struggling to deal with that because <laughs> I don't want you to love me in my unlovability because that reminds me of my unlovability. <laughs> I would rather be loved for my lovability. And that's a bottomless pit then, right? If we, if we go down or a rabbit hole, if we go down that path. <laughs> Well, we'll save that for when we talk about Kierkegaard. How about? All right. <laughs> okay. So then building then further on this, on, on Kitamori's uh, implications for Christian life. Um, so this may be startling to some, uh, to some Lutheran listeners, but Kitamori makes the assertion that the doctrine of justification by faith is barren if it does not result in mysticism, and even furthermore, in the mysticism of pain. And I know that will set off lots of alarm bells for lots of people, so let me talk through what he actually means by this. He very clearly in the book acknowledges the dangers of all kinds of mysticism, the attempt to encounter God apart from the cross and some kind of, you know, like candlelit, quiet, soft Celtic music playing kind of way. Um, he fully recognizes the religious delusions that turn mysticism into a, quote, hotbed for unsoundness, end quote. But he really wants to stress the point, if we can truly say, like St. Paul did, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, 
then it has to mean that to be a Christian is to somehow participate in Christ's experience of crucified pain. And so a doctrine of justification, that means Christ living in me and the faith uh, that responds to that, which does not develop into mysticism lacks power. But he says that the cross mysticism that comes from this and participation in Christ's pain or crucified pain should not be understood as masochism. And this is where he's particularly concerned that cross mysticism goes wrong. He says that this kind of mysticism also implies enjoyment of God. And he makes this really amazing succession. He says, the pain of God demands that we hate ourselves, but the love that is rooted in the pain of God envelops us so completely that we cannot even hate ourselves any longer. This reminds me so much of the early Luther, who was still very much talking about in his own inheritance of the mystical tradition, which really did give rise to his sense of Christ's presence, his justifying presence in us. You can't actually have Luther's Reformation breakthrough without the mystical background. But the early Luther is still kind of into this um, um, reducing oneself to, to hell, being willing to be damned for the glory of God and, you know, seeing one's weakness and embracing the cross and suffering in order, you know, to fully, uh, for, for Luther, it's about destroying the last shreds of self-will. The problem is he discovered that even the attempt to destroy self-will is an act of self-will right. because it wants to become the righteous person before God. And that finally he had to let that go too and develop some sort of um, certainly psychologically, but more importantly, spiritually healthy acceptance of oneself as a good creature who is indeed a sinner, but who is intended by God for salvation. And this attempt to like be more crucified than Christ is, is, um, is dangerous. And so this is what Kitamori I think is trying to do too, is saying that indeed we participate in Christ's crucified pain, but it doesn't stop there because the goal is indeed to be loved by God and to share in God's eternal life. So a mysticism of, of the cross that stops at masochistic self-hatred still has not fully grasped the extent of God's love and has misunderstood where the pain is located. Yeah, I think that's right. Not only do I think that's profoundly right, I think that's historically why the early Luther abandoned the rhetoric of the theology of the cross, uh, which he actually did. He stopped using that terminology after 1519 or 1518 even uh, and because he feared that it was being taken in a masochistic sense, uh, as if the more I hate myself, the more God will love me. Uh, so it's a per really perverse kind of uh, form of works righteousness. But I want to go back to your reference to uh, Galatians, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, as Kitamori's jumping off point for a mysticism. There was a book, I'm sure, if knowing how well-versed Kitamori was, by the famous Albert Schweitzer, the one who wrote Quest of the Historical Jesus, lost his faith and went off to be a medical missionary to the Belgian Congo. That, that Albert Schweitzer also wrote a book called The Mysticism of Paul the Apostle, in which he argued that there are two incompatible motifs in Paul, uh, a Hellenistic religion's mysticism uh, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and a Jewish legalistic uh, doctrine of the atonement, because he died for me and gave himself for me. 
And these two incompatible ideas are simply uh, juxtaposed and glued together in Paul's theology. And I wonder if Kitamori is aware of that and is responding to Schweitzer's book. Yes, I would say given his extensive education in German thought, I wouldn't be at all surprised. But I, I like that he tries to overcome those, putting those at odds with each other and seeing their unity, actually. Right, absolutely, right. All right, well, let's just about wrap up here. So there's just two last points I would like to make in, in regard to Kitamori's book here. So, um, so the one is that... For all his talk about pain, he's very clear to say that human pain, creaturely pain, is meaningless in and of itself. He does not want to, us to go down any false trails of, you know, God sends you these sufferings in order to teach you this kind of lesson or that it, you know, it, it means something, it serves a purpose, blah, 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 which is uh, an often a uh, very common way to try to cope with the experience of pain. He says it is simply dark, barren, meaningless. It does not do any good. It's not good for anything. It is simply affliction. But he says, and this is a classic biblical move of God making something good out of evil, not creating the evil to get the good, but responding to the evil with something good. He says that what God can do is make our human pain serve as a testimony. That's a very specific way of putting it, a testimony to God's own pain. And then this, in this way, we are able as believers to shed light and make use of our pain that would otherwise be completely useless and only destructive in our lives. Wow, I really like that too. In a couple of uh, months, I have to write um, a speech for the uh, annual conference of the Center for Catholic and Evangelical Theology. And I was asked to reflect upon, on the two-year anniversary of my stroke, reflect theologically on what it's like to survive a stroke. And I think these last words from Kitamori have just given me an angle with which to write that talk. Oh, wow, that's wonderful. Yeah, this this book is so rich. I, again, I just would like to say to listeners, seek it out and work through it. it is, I, I'm really only skimming the surface here of what's in it. And then let's go on finally, as our hour's about up here, go on to the last point. And I'm going to read right out of the book here. And I think this is important for all of my enthusiasm about this development and the doctrine of God. This is an important um, uh, reserve, let's say. At almost the last, at the last page, almost at the very end, he says, the pain of God is the wisdom of death. We cannot behold his pain without risking our life. We must pronounce the words pain of God as if we are allowed to speak them only once in our lifetime. Those who have beheld the pain of God cease to be loquacious and open their mouths only by the passion to bear witness to it. Whoa. <laughs> so this is not a, a cheap insight to throw around like, oh, God in pain. <laughs> yeah, no. But or turned into maudlin, sentimentalizing rhetoric, yeah. Right, or another platitude. No, this is this is a it invites um, reflection and um, struggle, and perhaps even our own pain in seeing that what the the heart of the gospel really is God's embracing those who should not and cannot be embraced because they are His enemies, and God does it anyway. That is the the most astounding quality of the gospel. Well, and you know, Sarah, that another, just it, it echoes again with Bonhoeffer's letters and papers from prison, in which he too affirmed that only a suffering God can help. That's a famous statement from letters and papers. 
And he also, on that loquaciousness point or over-talking about the pain of God, uh, he said, now is the time for prayer and righteous action. So I think that's quite, quite, quite in parallel to Kitamori's thought. Interestingly, that both were writing at the same time uh, during World War II as their respective nations were being defeated in the Great War. Yeah, and, and, and guilty of incredible acts of cruelty and brutality. Yeah, so we should not too cheaply take the lessons that people have won at great personal cost to themselves as well. You know, we didn't really get to the question of, of state Shintoism, uh, and maybe we can uh, do a future podcast on uh, what Christians should learn from the rise of Nazism or ultranationalism or something along those lines. I would be kind of curious uh, to understand more deeply whether Kitamori's more Lutheran approach to a theology of culture, uh, as opposed to the predominant predominance of a certain understanding of Bart's theology in Japan, uh, led to different attitudes towards state Shintoism. When you talked about his Kitamori's use of Japanese cultural resources, you didn't mention Shinto at all. You mentioned Kabuki theater and Pure Land Buddhism. So there's a whole thicket of issues here that would be interesting to explore. Okay. Well, speaking of problems of nationalism, on our next show, we will be talking about the book of Joshua. Oh boy. I wonder who's going to be doing talking about that. Yeah, I wonder. Okay. listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.